Just under 30 years ago, in 1994, Vice Media released their first product, a culture magazine covering music, arts, and a love for taboo subjects. This era is so commonly described as their punk rock era that despite being accurate, it's pretty much a cliche. They grew a cult following that quickly spread internationally and the media company launched additional arms of their business. But the road to peak success was found when they made the choice to focus on video content in the mid 2000s. YouTube was a brand new platform, the internet was entering homes at record rates, and content was starting to go viral. Entering into video at exactly the right time, Vice produced videos that were just polished enough to stand out among all those other amateur videos being uploaded to the internet at the time, while holding on just enough to that punk rock attitude and willingness to cover taboo subjects to catch viewers' fascination. And they went viral. They were riding trends, going viral, and using shocking titles to pull viewers in for equally shocking videos. They were the media company that was capturing the hearts of millennials, and they claimed that title for nearly a decade. In fact, the established legacy publications were starting to get worried. Would they die along with their current readers, with media companies like Vice and BuzzFeed taking their place for future generations? However, the base of this mountain of success was not as sturdy as some had thought. Legacy publishers such as New York Times had one giant advantage that Vice didn't, paying subscribers. He who lives by the algorithm will die by the algorithm, and most of Vice's life came from algorithms, whether it was YouTube or social media. In the early days of the internet, nearly anything or anyone was fair game to go viral. Consumers far outweighed producers, and algorithms were much less curated. But as time went by and social media and content sharing sites on the internet were put under more scrutiny for what happened on their platforms, algorithms became much more picky about the stuff they promoted. Facebook started limiting the reach of shared items and business pages, preferring person-to-person -person connection on their platforms. In 2017, the adpocalypse happened on YouTube, severely limiting the ability to monetize less family-friendly content. At the same time, a generation who had grown up watching YouTube decided they wanted to be YouTube stars, and with no barrier to entry, it became a lot more competitive to get those views online. They say the average life of a YouTuber is five to 10 years, and Vice had reached their lifespan. Their content lost its edge and the clicks, and with so much of its revenue based on the ability to go viral, they began to suffer. Ultimately, as an outsider, it's hard to say exactly what went wrong, but there's a few signs. First of all, we need to take a look at co-founder and CEO until 2018, Shane Smith. Shane Smith is by all accounts one of the best salesmen to ever walk this planet, and he did a lot of selling. He sold to investors, to advertisers, and anyone else he needed to make his vision happen. He painted an inspiring vision of Vice, the media company, to lead a generation into the future. The only problem is, it seemed he was much better at selling that vision than ensuring it would come true. But for a while, looked like it would. Shane was an opportunist and added many branches to Vice Media, a few of which are actually solid businesses in and of themselves today, even if they're not big enough to support the full company. And this is where we stray a bit from those verifiable facts and I begin to speculate. But it seems to me that what really went wrong here may have been too much of a focus on cooking up exciting new things and selling them, and too little focus on making sure this was all built on a reliable foundation that could weather the wildest of storms 
which were bound to come. This is a sober warning to us as business owners. Everything looks like an opportunity and there truly are opportunities at every turn, but we must be sure that the opportunity fits and will not ultimately cost us our whole business. As for Vice, high overhead and dwindling advertiser income has been the nail in the coffin of a media company in decline. It appears it will either be bought by George Soros' investment fund or be turned over to their biggest loan holder, Fortress Investment Group. But this week's news isn't all gloom and doom. Ed Sheeran just won a court case against the estate of Marvin Gaye that claimed that Sharon's song, Thinking Out Loud, was a copyright infringement on Gaye's song, Let's Get It On. Now, being a bit of a musician myself, my immediate reaction was that this was a bogus shot at money grabbing, and it seems that was also the opinion of most experts. And it turns out, the jury also held a similar opinion, taking only three hours to deliberate before deciding in the favor of Sharon. But this is a bigger problem than just this one case. Over the past couple years, it has become increasingly popular for estates of deceased musicians to sue current musicians over their biggest hits, claiming a copyright infringement against a song of the musician they represent. In fact, this wasn't Ed Sharon's first round in a copyright infringement case. In 2022, a judge struck down a copyright case against his song, Shape of You, and in 2016, he settled a claim against the song, Photograph, out of court for $20 million, though he now says he wishes he wouldn't have settled. This also wasn't the first time Marvin Gaye's estate went after some lawsuit money, with the estate actually winning a $5 million judgment against the writers of the song, Blurred Lines. Perhaps they simply thought, Sharon was a good target for another couple million. While our judicial system is probably one of the greatest government assets for the citizens of the United States, allowing pretty much everyone from any socioeconomic class to have a chance to get their voice heard, it also opens up the opportunity for people to use it as their chance to essentially win the lottery. Moral of the story, the bigger you get, the better lawyers you need. Also, a bunch of McDonald's franchises are currently in a lot of trouble for illegally employing minors, not paying hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines. So if you employ high schoolers in your business, be sure that you're familiar with the laws around that and comply. The last thing you need is an unhappy parent bringing your business a lawsuit or fine. In other news this week, it turns out that employees are happier than they've been in decades. A few weeks ago, we covered the rising demand for employers to take employee mental health into consideration, and it seems to be paying off. In somewhat worse news for the workplace, it's been discovered that the average employee blows a total of two days a week between meetings, emails, and communication tools like Slack. All of these things are great in their place, but it's important to make sure that your employees have focused time to put their head down and get things done. Create deep work hours, or whatever it takes to make sure that work isn't simply just squeezed in between all these other distractions. Also, remember when cannabis was the new gold a couple years ago? Even though more and more states are legalizing it for medical and recreational use, the industry itself is suffering a bit. The black market still takes a lot of business away from the legal market because of price differences due to taxes and fees, and it really doesn't seem as the legalization is on the federal government's agenda at all at the moment. So it remains a risky industry, far short of that gold rush it was thought to be five years ago. That's it for this week. Comment your thoughts on this week's news and subscribe to see future episodes.